Hi friends and welcome back to Murder Minded. I wanted to talk today about a case that became a staple in psychology books because of the bystander effect and which is also known as the Genovese syndrome. The bystander effect is a sociological effect that people are less likely to help a victim when there are other people around. People also hesitate because they believe someone else may be more qualified to help in the situation, so they should hold back. The best example of this is when someone suffers a medical emergency and people will hold back or hesitate to jump in because they think someone among the group may be some type of medical professional and can actually be of help while regular bystanders not qualified in the medical field might harm that person even more. My sources for this case are Wikipedia, Biography.com, and Psychology.org. This is the homicide of Kitty Genovese. Catherine Susan Genovese, or Kitty as we'll call her, was born in Brooklyn, New York on July 7, 1935, to parents Rachel and Vincent Genovese, and she was the eldest of five children. Her family lived at 29 St. John's Place in the neighborhood of Park Slope, which was made up of Italian and Irish heritage families. Kitty went to Prospect Heights High School, where she was remembered as, quote, being self-assured beyond her years and had a sunny disposition, end quote. She was also remembered as being a chatterbox in school, popular, and elected class cut-up in 1953. My high school didn't have this as a superlative, but I ultimately learned it's the same thing as class clown, so kind of being the person that disrupts the class for laughs and ultimately attention to themselves. In 1954, Kitty's family moved to Connecticut after her mother witnessed a murder but Kitty stayed with her grandparents in Brooklyn to get ready for her upcoming marriage. She married Rocco Anthony Fazolaire on Halloween in 1954. Rocco was an army officer and engineer and dated Kitty while she was in high school and he in college. The two divorced in 1956 and the marriage eventually was annulled. Kitty worked a number of jobs, including a secretary, waitress, hostess, and barmaid. But she eventually landed a job as a bar manager at Eve's 11th hour in Hollis, Queens in the late 1950s. She made great money at the time, $750 a month, which would have been equivalent to about $6,800 a month today, which is mind-blowing. She was reliable, hardworking, and worked double shifts to help save up to open her own Italian restaurant, which was her lifelong dream. In 1961, though, Kitty was briefly arrested for bookmaking which is when a person accepts and pays off bets on sporting and other events at an agreed-upon rate. Kitty and a co-worker, Dee, were taking bets from patrons at the bar for horse races and eventually fined $50 each and fired from their jobs. In 1963, Kitty met Marianne Zelanko at Swing Rendezvous, which was a lesbian bar in Greenwich Village in Manhattan. The pair eventually moved in together and found a second-floor apartment in Kew Gardens, Queens, right near the Long Island Railroad Station at 8270 Austin Street. On March 13, 1964, Kitty left the bar she was working at and started to head home in her red Fiat at 2.30 a.m. This actually happened to be the couple's first anniversary. At a red light on Hoover Avenue, Kitty was actually spotted by the man who would kill her, Winston Mosley, who was sitting in his car, which was a parked Chevy, Chevy Corvair, Kitty arrived home 45 minutes later at 3.15. Kitty parked her car in the lot at the train stop and began a walk to her apartment. 
Winston Mosley had followed her home and approached Kitty with a hunting knife. Kitty ran towards the front of her apartment building and Mosley grabbed her, stabbing her twice in the back. Kitty screamed, oh my God, he stabbed me, help me. One of Kitty's neighbors named Robert Moser heard the commotion and yelled out, quote, let that girl alone, end quote, which clearly we all know that yelling at a murderer is just the the right antidote to get them the hell out of there. Other neighbors heard the noise outside, but did not comprehend them as cries for help. Mosley then ran away and injured ki- and an injured kitty made her way inside of the building and eventually collapsed in the vestibule. Mosley was spotted 10 minutes later returning to the parking lot in a disguise, searching the train parking lot inside the train station and eventually Kitty's apartment complex and found her lying in a hallway in the back of her complex, unable to get in a locked door. Kitty's body was out of view of any witnesses at this time, and Mosley stabbed her again, raped her, and stole $49 from her before leaving. Both attacks took about under an hour, and a neighbor of Kitty's, Sophia Farrar, found her after the second attack and held her until the ambulance arrived. Kitty was buried on March 16, 1964, in Lakeview Cemetery in New Canaan, Connecticut. Interestingly enough, 911 had not been implemented at the time of this attack, and any records of police, any any records of calls to the police regarding the original attack were not given high priority. A witness's father called the police after the initial attack and reported that a woman was, quote, beat up, but got up and was staggering around, end quote. Following the final attack, a neighbor, Carl Ross, called the police again, and this was closer to 4 a.m. The ambulance picked up Kitty at around 4.15, and she died en route to the hospital of her injuries. Kitty's girlfriend, Marianne, identified her body at the morgue following the attack. The coroner discovered Kitty had been stabbed 13 times, and she had defensive wounds from fighting hard against Mosley to keep herself alive. If help had arrived following the first attack, Kitty would have survived her injuries. As in the way most homicide detectives begin their investigations, they started the interviews with Kitty's partner first. Marianne was quickly ruled out, even though she was being interrogated for six hours by two detectives. Their relationship and sexuality unfortunately became the main topic of conversation. Six days after the stabbing, Winston mostly was arrested for suspicion of robbery after a TV was found in the trunk of his car. One of Winston's neighbors, Raul Cleary, was suspicious of Winston when he saw him removing a TV from a neighbor's home. Raul questioned Winston, and he replied that he was, quote, a removal worker, end quote. Raul spoke to another neighbor, and they confirmed with each other that the owner of the home was not moving, so they called the police. During questioning about the stolen TV, Winston confessed to not only Kitty's murder, but two other ones. Annie Mae Johnson, who was shot and burned in her apartment in South Ozone Park, and Barbara Kralik, who was only 15 at the time and killed in her parents' home in Springfield Gardens the year prior. Winston had also admitted to 30 to 40 burglaries during this interrogation as well. So homeboy just thought, you know what, I may as well confess because I'm not getting out anytime soon if I go to jail. So get arrested once, and she just laid it out all on the table. 
He told cops details of the attack, which helped corroborate physical evidence that was left at the scene. What was Winston's motive for the attack? Simply put in his words to, quote, kill a woman, end quote. And he said he preferred to kill women because they, quote, were easier and didn't fight back. Well, according to Kitty's autopsy, she absolutely fought back to save her life. On the night of the attack, Winston snuck out of his house while his wife was working as an RN and prowled the streets of Queens looking for a perfect victim. Winston was 29 at the time of the attack on Kitty and worked at Remington Rand, which was a business machine manufacturer as a tab operator and primarily would prepare the punch cards that were used for employees to input their hours worked. He had absolutely no previous criminal record and was married with three kids and resided in Ozone Park, Queens. Mosley's trial started on June 8th, 1964, and initially entered in a plea of not guilty. His attorney, his attorney later amended this plea to not guilty by reason of insanity. Mosley described to the jury the nights of the event of March 13th while admitting to the other burglaries and rapes he told the police about. The jury deliberated for seven hours and returned a guilty verdict on June 11th. Four days later, on June 15th, Mosley was sentenced to death and showed no emotion while the verdict was read. On June 1st, 1967, the New York Court of Appeals stated that Mosley should have been able to argue that he was medically insane at the sentencing hearing, even though the trial court found him legally sane. His sentence was then reduced to life imprisonment. Mosley died in prison on March 28, 2016, at the age of 81. Surprisingly, the murder did not receive a lot of immediate attention. Initially, just a short blurb, which was only about four paragraphs in the New York Times the day after the murder. The New York City Police Commissioner, Michael J. Murphy, made a remark over lunch to the New York Times Metropolitan Editor, A.M. Rosenthal, over lunch one day saying that the, quote, Queen story is one for the books, end quote, hoping that this would motivate the Times to do an investigative report on Kitty's murder. The report came out on March 27, 1964, two weeks following the murder, and wrongly claimed that 37 people had witnessed the murder. This was written by Martin Gansberg. His report was titled, quote, 37 who saw murder didn't call the police. End quote. Later on, the facts and items mentioned in this report were disputed, and there was speculation that multiple witnesses did call the police, and the number of witnesses that saw the murder was immensely exaggerated. The story gained national attention, and readers were horrified to learn that so many bystanders did nothing in this situation, and many readers saw the lack of interest or concern of others' lives in big cities, particularly New York. Since 1964, though, the story has been reissued and updated with the headline, 38 who saw murder didn't call the police. In 2004, an article published on the 40th anniversary of Kitty's death, written by Jim Rosenberger, raised questions on the claims of the claims and facts originally reported in the investigative report in 1964. A study done in 2007 found that there were zero evidence of there being 37 witnesses or that any witnesses saw the full murder take place. In 2016, the New York Times called their second story as, quote, flawed, saying, 
quote, while there was no question the attack occurred and that some neighbors ignored cries for help, the portrayal of 37 witnesses as fully aware and unresponsive was erroneous. The article grossly exaggerated the number of witnesses and what they had perceived. None saw the attack in its entirety. Only a few had glimpsed parts of it or recognized the cries for help. Many thought that they had heard lovers or drunks quarreling. There were two attacks, not three. And afterward, two people did call the police. A 70-year-old woman ventured out and cradled the dying victims in her arms until they arrived. Miss Genovese died on the way to the hospital, end quote. Investigators later learned that only about a dozen people had heard some of the attacks, not 37. There's one main positive outcome to Kitty's murder. Her murder did help bring about the creation of 911, which I didn't realize that it was created so kind of recently. I thought this was something that had just kind of always been around. There was no centralized phone number for citizens to call in case of an instant emergency at the time. In case they did need the police, a citizen would have to dial zero for the operator, and then the information would need to be relayed to a communications bureau, and then finally the proper precinct, which took critical time away from those who needed the immediate help. Also keep in mind, if the operator was busy, they would not be able to immediately transfer your call delaying help even further. In 1967, the President's Commission on Law Enforcement and the Administration of Justice recommended creating a phone number that can be used to report nationwide emergencies. The FCC met with AT&T in November of 1967 to create the centralized number. Previously, the National Association for Fire Chiefs in 1957 had suggested a centralized phone number for citizens to call to report fires but serious discussion of creating a three-digit emergency number did not occur until after Kitty's murder. In 1968, 9-1-1 was agreed upon mainly because it was easy to remember and to dial. Because at the time, they were those, um, the rotator phones or whatever they were, so you weren't just punching in the numbers, you had to do the dial three separate times. Two social psychologists popularized the bystander theory in 1968. John Darley and Bib Latom became immensely interested in this topic after Kitty's murder. They began to do their own experiments, and they typically had a subject that was alone or in a group, and these people were usually paired with other participants. Usually an emergency situation happens, and the participants are timed to see how long it takes them to intervene and help, if they ultimately decide to jump in. Their research ultimately proved that contrary to public belief and popular belief, that a larger group of bystanders actually lowers the likelihood that someone will step in to help. The reasons for this happening include the fact that the onlookers see that others are not helping either, that onlookers believe others will know better how to help, and that onlookers feel uncertain about helping while others are watching. One of the experiments that they conducted included a woman in distress, where participants were either on their own with a friend or paired with a stranger. 70% of the people alone who witnessed the woman either called out to her or went to help the woman after witnessing her fall and saw she was hurt. 40% of the participants offered help when they were with a stranger. 
Darley and Latan learned through their research that a bystander has a five-step decision-making process before deciding to intervene in a crisis. One, notice that something is wrong. Two, define the situation as an emergency. Three, decide whether they are personally responsible to act. Four, choose how to help. And five, implement the chosen helping behavior. There's actually a popular show that tests out the bystander effect, and it's fascinating to watch. John Kinionis hosts What Would You Do? And it's a hidden camera show where actors will act out situations that are non-emergencies, while the cameras catch the real and raw reactions of the bystanders. Some of the situations on the show previously included a store clerk begins to racially profile an African-American customer, a man becomes uncomfortable when a gay couple begins to kiss at a bar, a bounty hunter, quote-unquote, tells shoppers at a flea market to help him detain a supposed fugitive mother by either arresting her, drugging her, or stealing her baby. And it's interesting to watch, though, because you really do see when people, because I've seen some of them where they take place in restaurants. And it's wild just to see how many people stay silent. And it's interesting to think that you see these situations. You're like, how would anybody not help and jump in? But when you do understand a little more of the psychology behind the bystander effect, it does make sense. And... The fact that everyone's like, oh, someone else will jump in, so I'm not going to say anything. And that assumption is proven. It's incredibly sad that it took an awful stabbing to establish 911, but think of the countless lives it's helped save, helped save since being created. It's something that's taught to us as kids that in an emergency, we dial 911. To be honest, though, I'm not entirely sure how the New York Times got this story so wrong and reported that 37 and then 38 people did nothing the fact that investigators only uncovered the the fact that a dozen witnesses heard or saw parts of the attack instead of 37 and it was reported that more than three times that witnessed some part of the attack is just not integral journalism in its finest and essentially misinformation We do know that sensationalized headlines sell papers and increase clicks nowadays, but I honestly couldn't find out why the number was so exaggerated in the New York Times investigative report. Thankfully, the New York Times was able to admit their mistakes decades later and that the information was inaccurate. And that was the story story of Kitty Genovese and her murder that came all too soon. So... I want to start trying this new short segment at the end of these episodes called Murder in a Minute, just stemming off of the fun fact I gave in the last episode, which granted it's not fun, but I also found it very interesting. There's a little, there's enough little tidbits I've learned throughout my research and my true true crime content consumption that I want to share as well. Today's fun fact, I actually learned from a person I subscribe to on YouTube And Wikipedia actually had a small mention about it, too. So, the Menendez brothers, who killed their parents in 1989, are seen in the background of the 1990 to 1991 NBA star Mark Jackson's basketball card as they appear to be sitting courtside behind him. So, 
um, after the Menendez brothers um, received the payout from their parents' life insurance, they went on this immense spending spree. Like they bought a restaurant, they had courtside Knicks tickets, they bought cars, blah, blah, blah. So in one of these spending sprees to sit courtside, they were actually photographed and put on these basketball cards unknowingly. In December of 2018, eBay began to completely take off any auctions in which the Menendez brothers are listed in the description of the cards. So some eBay sellers have gone around that and continue to sell the card while altering the images on the listing so you don't outright see the brothers so they're not mentioned or in the photo so they can continue to sell the card because my assumption is that this isn't super widely known so you've got only a specific people who are in true crime world that are fascinated by that it was really cool because the person i follow on youtube had showed it and i think if you're not true crime um invested or have that knowledge or know the case you're gonna be like okay this is just a regular card but as soon as he held up the card i was like holy shit that's the menendez brothers like it's insane like the fact it's just i mean the crime scene photos from that case are absolutely brutal so the fact that they just went and did all this spent this immense amount of money and then we're like we're gonna sit courtside at nick's games and the fact that it's forever captured on these cards i don't know there's part of there's part of me that wants to try and find one to get but i don't know if that's too morbid anyway well that's it for me here on murder minded thank you guys again for learning with me today i had actually never heard of this case until it popped up in my research so i thought it was important to share but also just to kind of give a little history of the formation of 911. So hope you have a fantastic rest of the week. Stay safe. Keep watch on your surroundings and stay murder-minded. Thanks, guys, and I will see you next week with another episode.